ವಸುದೇವಸುತ ಕಂಸಚಾಣೂರಮರ್ದನ So we are studying the Bhagavad Gita in this class and we are on the 10th chapter. Now what's going on here is uh, Sri Krishna has introduced Arjuna to a deeper and wider conception of God. So one way of looking at God is as it has been taught in my tradition maybe as Shiva or as Vishnu or as the Divine Mother in a particular form, in a particular name and that's it. As it is worshipped in the temple, as my Guru or my scripture has taught me, that's God. Now that's alright. Swami Vivekananda says the goal is to see God everywhere. Uh, but if you cannot, and most of us we cannot, uh, if you cannot see God everywhere, see God in one thing, in, in one form, in one name. And that's what religions of the world do. They, um, they give you a conception of God. But the truth is that God is not just that one form or one name or one conception. God is present in everything. God is indeed everything. So to go to that um, uh, wider conception of God, Sri Krishna says this entire universe uh, is uh, my manifestation. I become or transform my, myself or appear as this universe. Therefore, you can find me in everything in this universe. Just as wood, you make all sorts of furniture out of wood, but in that furniture you can find the wood. It's just wood. In all the waves that are born of water, you can find water. It's just water. Similarly, in the universe that is born of God, you can find God. And that's what Krishna is going to do in this chapter. He's going to say you can find God everywhere in this universe. What's happening here, philosophically speaking, is, as I've often said, Vivekananda says, we Hindus worship a transcendent, immanent God. So God who's beyond space, time and creation. But a God also who is in and through this space, time and creation, everywhere, in everything. Transcendent means beyond all this. Immanent means in and through all this. So both, the Hindus uh, worship God as both. So for the Hindus, it is no problem to say that God is here, with us, everywhere. Now the way Krishna does it is, this universe is the glory of God. In Sanskrit, Vibhuti. Vibhuti. Vibhuti means glory of God. And uh, in order to point that out, so he tells Arjuna that you can meditate upon God by looking at this universe. Now Arjuna asks, can you give me some examples? How am I to do that? And what Krishna does is, he gives a list of um, things where, which you, you see uh, in this universe, or you know about, or at least a devout uh, Hindu in Arjuna's time would know about, and says, points out, that, that's where I am. You think of me there, there, there. And usually what he does is, he points out the most excellent, most glorious, most powerful, most well-known, famous, Whatever it is that attracts us most, first. It's easier to see God in something glorious, something nice, pleasant, uh, awesome. And then to see it. You can see it in the quasar, but you can also see it in the, in the you know, particle of dust. It's there everywhere. So that he's going to give us a list here. Uh, 
Even this idea is intermediate. Beyond this lies the great unity of Aham Brahmasmi. Whatever is the reality in this universe is the reality within yourself. It is one and the same. You are that absolute existence consciousness place all the time, present all the time, most obvious. But it's not easier to get to there. So that's why Vivekananda says, so that's like you can think of it as three steps. Think of God in one way. Develop your faith and uh, devotion. Then think of that same God present everywhere. And then know it to be your innermost reality. I and that are one, real, one reality, non-duality. So we know of the great devotee of Krishna, the baby Krishna's devotee, uh, Gopal Erma, you know, those, who have heard, know, those who know the story of Sri Ramakrishna, they have heard of this. Uh, she was a Brahmin widow who spent all her life uh, in prayer and devotion to Krishna, the baby Krishna. Now, after some time, she saw that baby Krishna everywhere and in everybody. So you see how it moves from one form in one way to pre be present everywhere. I have myself heard one Mataji high in the Himalayas, Subhadra Mataji for those who have known, known her. She passed a few years ago. She used to worship Gopala as the baby Krishna. Um, and she would say, Baba sab Gopal hai. My child, everything, everything, all are Gopala. So what's going to happen now is all philosophical build-up, but not much philosophical content is there right now. Krishna is going to give you a catalogue of, you can see me here, here and here. So he's just going to tell you things uh, where you can um, visualize God, which you can use to remind yourself of God. So not much philosophical content, but plenty of stories. So I was thinking, what do I do with these verses? I can just read it out. But they all have stories, you know, these are all taken from the Puranas. So I'll tell you a few stories maybe just to, and instead of just reading out the verses. We will read the verses. And the next few verses up to the end of this chapter will go pretty fast. I think we are done the 22nd verse, if you remember. 23rd verse. Rudranam Shankaras Chasmi Rudranam Shankaras Chasmi Vittesho Yaksharakshasam Vittesho Yaksharakshasam Vasunam Pavakas Chasmi Vasunam Pavakas Chasmi Meru Shikharinamaham Meru Shikharinamaham Of the Rudras I am Shankara of the Yakshas and Rakshasas, I am Kubera. Of the Vasus, I am fire. And among mountains, I am Meru. So the Rudras are certain deities. And are among them, and they are all supposed to be forms of auspiciousness. Among them, the most well-known and the most beloved, most worshipped is of course Shankara. Literally, the meaning of the word Shankara is Shankaroti, the one who, who is auspicious or bestows auspiciousness. So among all the Rudras, now for us it may not be uh, evocative because whoever worships Rudras here in, in uh, Manhattan in 21st century, but it was something common for the Vedic people. Among all of them, know me to be Shankara. Now does it mean that he is not the other deities? He is. God is all. But want to meditate? Here, take one. 
and focus here of the yaksha rakshas rakshasas so vittesha the lord of wealth again all of these stories take us back those who have grown up in india if you have, you will know all these stories especially if you have read amar chitra katha comics and, <laughs> and heard stories from your grandmother or whatever <laughs> so the lord of wealth everybody knows is kubera uh, so among the yakshas divine beings called yakshas um and the rakshasas the, the demons uh i am kubera the lord of wealth so this is the person in charge of money you can see the much much sought after person yes <laughs> so he is a demigod what you might call a demigod is not really divine or go- uh, godlike but in charge of money and curiously krishna has clubbed together two two kinds of supernatural beings the yakshas and the rakshasas the yakshas are um, uh, different kinds of demigods and the rakshasas are demons but he has put them together and says among them i am kubera kubera is actually known to be a yaksha not a demon but the commentator here this is from shridhar swami's commentary he makes an interesting observation why did krishna club these two quite distinct varieties of um, um, you know supernatural beings together he says here um um rak uh, he says kruratwadi samyad <laughs> he says because these demons and the yakshas uh, they are equally cruel <laughs> so they have some similar qualities that's why krishna has clubbed them together and he says that kubera i am kubera think of me in the form of kubera and then of all that is purifying uh, among the vasus the deity is called vasus i am fire the god of fire agni so the god of fire agni is very special for the vedic uh, hindus uh, because agni is called hutavaha hutavaha means that the one who carries your sacrificial offerings to to the gods so these vedic uh, hindus would light the sacrificial fires and with elaborate sacrifices they would offer you know clarified butter ghee and other things with an accompaniment of vedic mantras being chanted and the fire that sacrificial fire was called hutavaha the one who carries your offerings to um to 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 uh, heaven to the vedic gods this led the charvakas the materialists of ancient india uh, you know they were always trying to poke they were skeptical and uh, poke holes in the in the religion of the day so one of the things i remember they say is that oh so if you offer uh, uh, you know offerings to the fire uh, in the name of your father or for a grandfather and so that after death he will go to heaven and you, you organize an elaborate sacrifice and the fire takes the offerings to the gods in heaven why don't you toss your father or grandfather into the fire he'll go straight to heaven <laughs> so Yeah, so they are a mischievous lot. They are not very popular. <laughs> Then, fire is also said to be the mouth of God. It's associated with the power of speech. Even in English, we have you know he gave a fiery speech. Somehow, fire has something to do with speech. He spoke words of fire, or he spoke fire. So. 
fire. Meru shikharinam aham, among the peaks, that means mountains with peaks, I am the fabled, fabulous Mount Meru, which is present in the mythology across India, South Asia. By the way, many of these stories, things which I'll talk about today, are uh, present in different ways, not only throughout the Indian subcontinent, but throughout South Asia, Southeast Asia. Uh, um, one of our close associates who recently visited Vietnam, Cambodia, uh, you know, Southeast Asia, was talking about the widespread presence of Sanskrit words and Indian motifs. You see Garuda, Hanuman, um, the king of uh, Cambodia, one of the titles is Senapati, which is leader of the armies, which is a Sanskrit term. And so many Sanskrit terms in their language and even in the culture right now. But they are not Hindus now. Mo one, um, La Laos, uh, Cambodia, Vietnam, they are mostly Buddhist. Uh, Malaysia and Indonesia are mostly Muslim. But you see widespread. And many of these stories are current there. So the f fabulous Mount Meru which is supposed to be the repository of, uh, of all kinds of jewels and gold and whatnot. So among all the, mount the mount mountains, the peaked one, the high peaks, I am uh, Meru. Think of me when you think of Meru. The point is not to think of the Mount Meru or fire or, uh, you know, Kubera. Uh, that's just distraction. It's in all of these things you think of God. Let these remind you of God. Moving on. 24th verse. Purodhasam cha mukhyam maam, Purodhasam cha mukhyam maam, Vidhi partha brihaspatim, Vidhi partha brihaspatim, Senani namaham skanda, Senani namaham skanda, Sarasamasmi sagaraha, Sarasamasmi sagaraha, Know that I am Brihaspati, the foremost among priests, O Partha. Of army leaders, I am Skanda. Of natural reservoirs, I am the ocean. So among all the priests, you know, the Vedic priests who perform sacrifices, was most famed was Brihaspati. He was the guru of the gods, devatas, the guru of all the gods, Brihaspati. He was supposed to be fabulously learned and the greatest of the priests who would preside over these um, Vedic uh, sacrifices. So, a very famous person, Brihaspati, um, and supposed to be exceptionally intelligent and very learned. So much so that in some parts of India, if you want to say, say, you want to you know, call somebody dumb, you would say that, oh, you are a regular Brihaspati. <laughs> you know, like when you, when you say here, you know, like, uh, oh, oh, that was sheer genius, you know, <laughs> or oh, you're a genius when you are saying that somebody is being silly. <laughs> so like that, they sometimes say, some parts of India would say, oh, you're a Brihaspati, which means you're actually dumb. <laughs> but he is so intelligent and so learned and um, so uh, learned in the ways of Vedic ritualism. So among all the priests know me to be Brihaspati, which means when you think of Brihaspati, think of, think of God. Among all the generals, see, Senani now, we were just talking about Senapati. Among all generals, I am the general of the gods, Skanda, uh, Kartikeya, Sarasamasmi Sagara, of all water reservoirs, more than any lake or pond or whatever, it's, the ocean is the greatest reservoir. So when you see the ocean, think of God. 
I am the ocean among all reservoirs. Then um, 25th. Maharshi Nam Bhrigoraham Maharshi Nam Bhrigoraham Giram Asmekamaksharam Giram Asmekamaksharam Yajnanam Japa Yajnosmi Yajnanam Japa Yajnosmi Sthavaranam Himalaya Sthavaranam Himalaya Of the great sages I am Bhrigu Of words I am the monosyllable Om Of sacrifices I am the Japa sacrifice Of immovables I am the Himalayas so of the great sages, Rishi. The Rishis were the sages who revealed the Vedas. So Rishaya Mantra Drashtara, those who saw the spiritual truths, they are called Rishis. And there are many of them. We know of the Sapta Rishis, the seven Rishis, for example, and the star constellation, the so seven Rishis, and so on. Um, among them, Krishna says, Bhrigu is one of the most famous. There are... Uh, descendants among the Hindus who, who trace their descent from Bhrigu. So they are called Bhargava. So this Bhrigu, I am, when you think of Bhrigu, think of, think of me. Many stories, uh, Bhrigu. He is the one who famously decided, you know, there was a big question, who is greater among Brahma, Vishnu, Maheshwara? The three forms of God, who decided? And it, uh, it was decided that um, Vishnu is the greatest among them. And who decided? Who decided? Bhrigu, this Rishi. The story is quite funny actually. Now Bhrigu, he had a reputation for, so these are, now we're going to stories. And, <laughs> and the stories always had a point. There are two kinds of sources of these stories in, in Hinduism. One is called Itihasa, another is called Purana. So, Itihasa, Mahabharata, Ramayana, these were stories, but they had, uh, they were firmly based in some kind of historical fact. So, they primarily wanted to convey something that had happened. Literally, Itihasa means, thus it happened. Itihasa, thus it was. The Puranas, they have a nugget of truth in them also, but the point there is not history. The point there is, um, it is um, uh, like teaching a, a moral trying to convey a message, to, to convey a deep philosophical truth through colorful stories. That's why the Puranic stories will have multiple versions. It doesn't matter. You ask which one, was it this way or that way? Both ways, it's fine. As long as you get the point. You know, myths, we often hear, the word myth is very uh, misleading. Because when you say myth, it means, oh, it doesn't happen, it's false. It's not real. The uh, religion, scholar of religion Reza Aslan, he said, myths are always true. Myths are always true because the truth they want to convey is a deep truth for humanity. So they are always true. It's not at all about a historical fact. History itself is always changing. I'm reminded there was a workshop there was, a, there was a conference in uh, the new school here in Manhattan and the theme was very interesting. The, the theme of the conference was the unknown, the unknown, um, unknown and unknowable. 
and they were speakers, leading speakers from every field. Science and from physics, we had John Barrows. Um, then we had, uh, so there was someone from physics, there was someone from mathematics, there was somebody from history, literature. So history, there was this professor, I forget his name, he was from England, I think from Cambridge or the University of Sussex, I forget. But he said something that has remained in my memory. He said, the future is fixed, the past is always changing. <laughs> what do you mean? He says, future is fixed in the sense that something will happen. Something will happen. We don't know it. Something will happen. But the past for us is history. It's the human discipline of history. When you're trying to understand what happened in the past and explain it, all of that depends on your evidence, your historical theories, your you know, changing um, theories of what happened in the past. So the, the past is always changing and the future is fixed. <laughs> um, so these are stories from the Puranas. These are stories from the Puranas. So I'm saying this because, especially for Indians here, you would say, no, that's not the way it was. I heard it the other way. <laughs> you, there are many, many versions of these stories. So the story of Bhrigu, for example. Oh, yes. How did he come to uh, choose, to select that Vishnu was the greatest among Brahma, Vishnu, Maheshwar, or Shiva? Uh, now, the problem with Bhrigu was he was notoriously hot-tempered and arrogant uh, and a great sage. So how did he get cured and how did he get enlightened? So he was asked to find out who is tasked with finding, finding out who is greater, Brahma, Vishnu, Brahma, the creator, Vishnu, the preserver, and Shiva, the cosmic, um, you know, the one who destroys the cosmos at the end of creation. He goes to Brahma, long story short, I'll cut it short because there's lots. <laughs> long story short, Brahma was busy, could not give him an audience. And Brahma happened to be his father also, um, Bhrigu's father. Give him an audience, Bhrigu very naturally lost his temper as was expected. And he misbehaved with Brahma and Brahma was about to curse him, so Bhrigu ran for his life. Next, he decided to visit Kailasha to meet Shiva, to check him out and see how great he is. And Shiva, lo and behold, was busy and couldn't grant him an audience. And Bhrigu lost his temper and misbehaved with Shiva and Shiva was also lost his temper and was about to curse him. And Bhrigu ran for his life and he thought, I should go to Vaikuntha, the abode of Vishnu, and find out how great Vishnu is. So he goes there. And to his exasperation, he finds Vishnu sleeping <laughs> on the cosmic serpent, where he's, al he's always sleeping. And so he was sleeping and snoring. The snoring, not really snoring. I, that's my touch. I mean, I thought it was a good touch. He was snoring and Bhrigu couldn't take it anymore. He was horrified. You're supposed to be God. Don't you have work to do? And so he, he goes up to Vishnu and it's a famous story. He kicks Vishnu in the chest and wake up. Don't you have work to do? And so Vishnu opens his eyes and holds on to the sage's feet on his chest. And he says very sweetly, uh, Oh revered sir, I hope kicking my chest didn't hurt your foot. And he held his, uh, his foot to his chest and used that. So here's the thing. Um, Bhrigu had this eye, he had an eye in his foot. And that... <laughs> And that was not the third eye of knowledge, which was the eye of ignorance. And that was the whole point of the story, that somehow he had to be cured of this ignorance. And Vishnu um, expertly and gently removed that eye of ignorance from his foot and let go of his foot. And immediately Bhrigu was cured of his um, arrogance and anger and he bowed down to Vishnu and said, you are the greatest. So 
that's that was Bhrigu. But there are many, many stories about Bhrigu. One I particularly like, and which many Indians here will uh, identify with, is his son, one of his sons. So almost all of these sages were householders. They were all married, and they all had children. So one of his sons was the sage Chavana. And this son was so austere. He did so much meditation and fasting and sat rooted in one place meditating that a termite hill grew around him. And it grew and grew and covered him until two eyes were left, nothing else. Now one day a king came hunting there with his hunting party and they saw these two bright eyes staring out of a, a termite hill. And they poked it with a stick, hurting the sage who was furious with them. And finally um, the king uh, begged forgiveness and gave his only daughter in marriage to the sage. Um, and so the daughter, she was a very devoted wife and she took care of the sage who was already very sickly and emaciated from his austerities and his fasting and his meditations. So she took care of him. Again, long story short, there's a st long story here. The two twins, another uh, branch of demigods, the Ashwins. Uh, so they are the masters of herbs. Not that kind. Uh, <laughs> there are many masters of herbs now. Ever since the law was, le it was legalized last year, <laughs> a couple of years back. But yes, so they happened to come across uh, the, the sage's wife and they offered to heal him. And they prepared a medicine and they gave it to the sage who regained his youth and his, his um, vigor and all. He was very happy and he blessed the Ashwins that from now on in the great uh, Vedic sacrifices you will get a portion of the offerings which they are not entitled to because they are not strictly Vedic gods. Anyway, why am I saying, telling this story? What does it have to do with Rigu? So this medicine which uh, was given to the sage Javana, those are from, <laughs> are from India, know where this is leading. It's, it's none other than the famous, infamous, notorious Javan Prash, <laughs> which is a medicine ever since given to Indian kids for the last 5,000 years or so. I myself been fed that, and all of us have horror stories of that, that medicine. It is the most awful concoction. <laughs> I think almost every Indian kid has been force-fed by their, uh, their concerned moms, the Chavan Prash. No, but I've come across uh, people who love Chavan Prash, so we can't say it's awful. Anyway, that's the story. Yeah, wonderful stories, right? So this is the story of Bhrigu. <coughs> Among the great Maharshi, the great Rishis, I am Bhrigu. Among words, giramasmi ekam aksharam, I am that single syllable, Om, Krishna says. This is a no-brainer. If he, were to, he had to pick one letter, he would have picked Om. So it's the most, the holiest mantra in all of Hinduism, or just Hinduism. It's important in Buddhism, Jainism, Sikhism, all the Indic religions. Om. And it's used before every mantra, every prayer, it starts with Om. Um, then you want to sanctify something, you do, you chant Om. 
meditation, one great way of meditation. In Advaita Vedanta, they say, Dirgha Pranava Uchcharana, chanting of a prolonged Om, and on and on and on. So it calms down the mind very fast and directly. Um, the Yoga Sutras say, Tasya Vachaka Pranava, Om is the name of God. So Om is the name of God. Um, what else? And of course, most famously in Advaita Vedanta, Om, the the shortest and most powerful of Upanishads, the Mandukya Upanishad, is all about Om. The constituents of the phonetic constituents of Om are the three letters, A, U, Ma, A, U, Ma. Um, it's not Aum. If you combine them, it becomes Om. Many people didn't know that, and then they know it. Oh, and now I know it's actually a u ma, and so I should pronounce it as aum. No, don't. Little knowledge is dangerous. <laughs> in fact, the a and the u, in English you write it as a u m, but the a and the u, if you put it together by the rules of Sanskrit grammar, it becomes o. So the way we write it in English is actually absolutely correct. O m is absolutely correct. Om. And these three constituents, they are taken to stand for a stands for you the waker and your entire waking experience this world u stands for you the person in the dream and your entire dream world whichever dream you are in and m the last word letter stand last constituent sound stands for the deep sleep where subject and object are mushed together in a featureless blankness and when you chant it, that is your entire experience of life. A, U, Ma, together you chant it as Om. Don't stand, chant A separately and U separately and Ma separately, but to chant, chant Om. And you're supposed to see that all our life, waking, all our dreams, and all times of deep sleep, anesthesia, coma, whatever it is, um, all of them are coming and going before one consciousness. And the silence after Om represents this consciousness. So, the entire Mandukya Upanishad, the Mandukya Upanishad is very short and it is the most direct, most powerful. It tells you that you are this ever-present consciousness in which appears the, the, the cosmos, the physical cosmos of the waking, the mental cosmos of the dream and the causal cosmos of the deep sleep. And all of them appear disappear and reappear in one consciousness. They are not apart from that consciousness. That one consciousness is the absolute reality of this universe and you are that. You are that. I am Atma Brahma, the Mandukya Upanishad says. And that's the meaning of Om. That's the most philosophical and deep meaning of Om. But Om has various manifestations across the Indic culture. So naturally Krishna says, among all letters, I am Om. Yajnanam Japayajnasmi Among all rituals, especially the rituals which were uh, prevalent in the Vedic times, Yajna, which means a fire ritual. Among all the rituals, I am actually the ritual of repeating God's name. Repeating God's name. So if you repeat Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya, the name of Krishna, or Om Namah Shivaya, the name of Shiva, and so on. Or you have, you have been initiated into a mantra. To repeat that mantra, as has been taught to, by, to you by your Guru, that is called Japayagya, the offering of the names of God. 
And here Krishna says, that's the most powerful, the best, among all sacrifices, I am that. And that's the glory of God. In our order, as in many Hindu orders, Japa Yajna, the, the spiritual practice called Japa, is the primary spiritual practice, which is connected with meditation and Japa, Japa and Dhyana. So we are initiated by a guru and given an Ishta Devata, that God in this particular form is the way you will practice. This is the form in which you will worship God. All forms are God, but in this particular form is your own and you have to worship God in this way and this is the name associated with it and there will be Om, and there usually is a mystic syllable associated with it and so this mantra you have to repeat. How many times? All the time, ideally, but oh, that's too difficult. Alright, and then the Guru will tell you, depending upon the Guru, um, 108 times and then multiples of 108, 1000 times, 10,000 times, whatever. This is called Japa Yajna. This is saying, Japat Siddhi. Enlightenment, perfection comes from Japa, from repeating the mantra. This was something um, stressed by Sri Ramakrishna, especially by Ma Sharada, by the Holy Mother. She recommended this for all her disciples. You must do Japa. Um, repeat the name of God. And then you can do it with your hands. And the Guru will show you how. Or with a rosary. Not only in Hinduism. But uh, rep repetition of names. With Buddhism. There is no God. But Japa is a very powerful thing. You will find most of the Tibetan Buddhist monks. They have a rosary. Which they are using for <laughs> repeating. Then um, in Islam. So they repeat the 99 names of God as you find in the Quran. In Christianity, in for example Catholicism and especially the Eastern Orthodox traditions. So there is this uh, beautiful book, if, uh, you should read it if you have not, The Way of the Pilgrim. It's, a, it's from the Russian Orthodox Church um, about um, this man who repeats the Jesus prayer continuously. Lord Jesus have mercy upon me, that, that much. All through the through whatever he is doing in life, wherever he is traveling, wherever he is eating, talking, meeting with different people, uh, encountering ups and downs in life, hard times in life, all the time he, that one goes on in the background. And if you read this, your mind calms down. Just reading the book. So this is a book on Japa. And here Krishna says, among all rituals, I am the ritual of repeating the name of God. Japa Yajna. Among all Immovable uh, masses. He says, I am Himalaya, the mountains. All mountains are beautiful. There's something spiritual about mountains, hills and mountains. Um, but especially the Himalayas. Those who have been there, I remember, um, for Indians especially, it evokes um, strongly, strong mystic associations. I remember the first time I, I was going to the Himalayas after becoming a monk. Um, this was about 20 years ago. I still clearly remember. You had to go around and around those hills in the bus with other uh, passengers as you climb higher and higher and higher. All oh, the low-lying hills first and then higher hills. And then suddenly it turns a bend in it's going round and round where in a distance you see your first snow peaks, snow-clad peaks, though the real giants of the Himalayas. Um, I remember once I was in Colorado, where the Rockies start, right? So we went up to this peak, um, about 12, 14,000 feet high. Um, in Colorado? 
it was from we had gone from Denver up there. And the rangers, they told me, when they said, say that I'm from India, monk from India, he said, oh, you're the real giants in the Himalayas. So right, you see them towering. So I was in Gangotri, which is actually low, because the mountains surrounding Gangotri, Gangotri is 10,000 feet high, and the mountains surrounding Gangotri are 15, 20, uh, 25,000 feet. And you see the real giants from our ashram in Mayavati, which was established by Swami Vivekananda. You can see K2, the second highest peak in... Um, uh, in the world and so on. So those are the real giants. And here he says, among all the immovable masses, I am Himalaya. Again, the point is not to go on a tour of the Himalayas. Let the thought of the Himalayas remind you of God. Let the thought of the sage uh, Bhrigu remind you of God. Of um, um, And Japa, of course, it reminds you of God. 26. Ashwatha Sarva Vrikshanam Ashwatha Sarva Vrikshanam Devarshinam Chanarada Devarshinam Chanarada Gandharvanam Chitraratha Gandharvanam Chitraratha Siddhanam Kapilo Munihi Siddhanam Kapilo Munihi of all the trees, I am the Ashwatha people tree. Of divine sages, I am Narada. Of Gandharvas, I am Chitraratha. And among perfect souls, I am the saint Kapila. Um, so Narada, of course, is a famous Rishi. Again, very beloved in uh, stories in India. He is a devotee of, um, of Vishnu, Narayana. And he sings the praises of... Uh, Vishnu and he travels all the worlds and he has a stringed instrument called the Veena. Mm. Um, and he sings, he is famously he sings the praises of Vishnu. Also, he is associated with the Leelas of Vishnu. So Vishnu famously comes as avatars, incarnates from time to time uh, in human affairs and uh, often he has people to help him out, other divine beings. And Narada is one of them. And Narada usually sets the scene, usually by creating a mess. <laughs> That's why it's well known among, uh, in, in, in Indian um, you know, folklore, that Narada appearing means some trouble is going to happen. And then Vishnu comes and fixes it. So, so they have this understanding. <laughs> and there's so many beautiful stories. Um, David Chalmers, in his new book, Reality Plus, he has a cartoon of Vishnu and Narada in one of in the early chapters, talking about Maya, about virtual reality. So one of the stories, many, many stories about Narada. So Narada asks Vishnu, um, can you show me your Maya? I've heard so much about your Maya by which you project this universe, your divine power. Vishnu says, ask something else. You're asking for trouble. <laughs> Narada says, no, I want to know that. And uh, then Vishnu says, all right, I'll show you, but first get me some water. I'm, I'm uh, parched. And then Narada goes to the nearby village and he finds a well. And there's this uh, girl who is uh, drawing water from the well. And Narada goes and asks her, can, can you give me some water? Um, and she says, yes. And Narada see, uh, sees this girl and falls in love with her immediately. And then is totally forgotten that Vishnu is waiting for water. <laughs> then he follows her home. And then he asks her father for her hand in marriage. And then he gets married to that, that girl. And he settles down. And the father offers part of their farmlands and all. 
So he's now a farmer, well-to-do, settled there. And then they have, I think, three kids over the years. And the years pass happily. And then one night there is a great flash flood. You know, they didn't have this alert uh, on the mobile phone, flash flood alert. And so when he wakes up, he finds there's a deluge of water coming in and it's pouring into the house and everything is, being, is floating away. Somehow he grabs um, the kids uh, with one hand and the youngest kid he puts on his shoulder. With the other hand, he grabs his wife and they struggle out into the flood waters. And to his horror, one by one, the kids are swept away from his hand by the force of the water. His wife is swept away and then he is thrown on the shore, uh, weeping and wailing. He loses consciousness and then he comes to... He's, he's bitterly crying and then suddenly he sees Vishnu standing in front of him. <laughs> it's quite alright, it's dry land. Uh, and uh, Vishnu looks at him quizzically and says, Narada, where have you been? I've been waiting quite the quarter of an hour for, you know, 15 minutes, 20 minutes has gone by. Uh, f where's the water? Half an hour, 15 minutes and uh, 10 years or some 12 years had passed in Narada's life and so many things had happened. That is Maya. Mm. Um, the same question was asked by a disciple to, to Vivekananda in Belur, in, in the monastery. So this disciple, Vivekananda was pleased with him and said, ask me for anything. And the disciple said, I want to know what Maya is. And Vivekananda said, ask something else. <laughs> and the disciple said, if by getting a guru like you, I don't understand what Maya is, then uh, I have no hope, sir. So you must, this is my question. I want an answer to this. And then Vivekananda started speaking and the disciple notes in his reminiscences, it's as if the room started spinning around me, you know, and everything began to disappear into a great void and there was just this mass of luminosity remaining. I couldn't see my own body, I couldn't see Vivekananda, just this mass of luminosity and yet somehow Vivekananda's words were still audible there. And I broke out and I, I shouted in excitement, Oh, this is the truth. Then everything that we know is Maya, including your, you know, your monastery and your uh, Ramakrishna mission and all of that is also Maya. Uh, and now what, what he wrote was, he spoke in Bengali. So in Indian languages you have these gradations of address. You know, in Hindi you have Aap, which means Thou, you, you address somebody superior or your guru or your parents or something like that. And Tum, means somebody at the same level. Um, so he addressed, Vivekananda is his guru. So in Bengali he should have said Apni. But he, he suddenly noticed he was calling Vivekananda Tumi, which is a familiarity for, with you know, somebody who is an equal. That struck him. And the moment this idea of difference came into his uh, mind, everything snapped back into place. There was Vivekananda looking at him and smiling. And there was the, you know, the river and the monastery and whatnot. And he was there. And Vivekananda looked at him and nodded, you are right, it is all Maya. If you can be absorbed in Brahman, you go beyond it all. If you cannot, then come and help me in this work. <laughs> so sadhana, if you can, you don't need sadhana, you're done. The game of life is over for you, you have reached the highest. If you cannot, most of us cannot, then come here. Service of humanity, meditation, prayer, all the spiritual practices, come here. Question in your minds would be, um, what did Vivekananda say? We would like to know that. And although he has not written anything what Vivekananda said, the gentleman, but we have three lectures of Vivekananda on Maya. 
So if you look at the complete works of Vivekananda, Jnana Yoga, that book, there are three lectures on Maya. I, su- I suppose he must have said something of that sort to the disciple. Then, uh, Narada. So that story, Narada and Vishnu standing there talking about Maya, virtual reality. So David Chalmers has put it in his book as a cartoon, Narada and Vishnu are standing there. Gandharvanam Chitraratha, among the Gandharvas. The Gandharvas are uh, divine singers, the musicians. They are, they are also demigods, they are not exactly Vedic gods, but they are musicians of an extraordinarily high uh, caliber. I mean, something you would find in the Juilliard or something, I guess. And they are also relatively immortal, so they are much longer lived than uh, human beings. And they, are, they have superior power, so they are invisible to us. But they are all the time in music. You know, how it could be, uh, who was it? Um, Bach or Beethoven who became deaf Beethoven yeah, and he could hear all music in his mind not literally outside and he could still keep on composing which means it's not really this physical ear which is all that important if you tune your the subtle body inside the mind in a particular way you don't even need you don't even need to hear music to actually hear music Probably his experience of music was even more ethereal, even uh, uh, sort of um, uh, more super fine than the way we hear it. That gives you an idea about what Gandharvas might be. So among them, one of the most talented is Chitraratha. And uh, uh, Krishna says, when you think of the Gandharvas and Chitraratha, think of me. Um, Siddhanam Kapilo Muni, among the perfected ones, those who are self-realized, Kapila is a, one of the great sages in Hinduism. Is Kapila, so he's supposed to be the first of the perfected ones. Vivekananda says Kapila was the first philosopher of the human race, and he is the one who give, gives us the Sankhya system of uh, philosophy, Sankhya Darshana, Kapila Rishi, or Kapila Muni. And then twenty-seventh. Ucchayshavasamashwanam Ucchayshavasamashwanam Vidhi mamam ritodbhavam Vidhi mamam ritodbhavam Airavatam gajendranam Airavatam gajendranam Naranam cha naradhipam Naranam cha naradhipam of horses, no may to be Ucchayishravas, born of the churning for nectar, of lordly elephants, Airavata, and among men, amongst men, the king. So this horse, this is the horse of the gods, Ucchayishravas, is the mount of Indra. So uh, this goes back to the very old story for the churning of nectar. So in the ocean, there is nectar or Amrita. Those who drink of this nectar become immortal. And the gods wanted it and the demons wanted it. And so Vishnu told them that, yes, you go and, you know, this is where you dig. <laughs> Google Maps, he pointed out. And so they're the great churning of the ocean. And the prize was nectar. And those who have nectar become immortal. Obviously, they become supreme among all beings, among humans and gods and demons. 
ultimately we know that the gods got it that's why they became immortal but while it was being churned or oh, to churn they used the mount meru <laughs> so to churn and while it was being churned um lots of things came up good and bad first of all a poison came up called garala uh, which is which means which literally means poison but uh, it threatened to destroy the universe and shiva drank it to preserve the universe and that it left a blue spot on his neck that's why it's called nilakantha who drinks so shiva is the one who drinks all the suffering and poison and awfulness of this world so that we are spared of that poison um then came lots of treasures which um and the the they all vied for so for example this horse was one of them a divine horse a divine elephant and so many things like that so mam amrito udbhavam from nectar that means from the churning for the nectar remember that story from there comes this horse well think of that excellent horse if you think of it uh, you think of me and the great elephant um airavata who also was one of the treasures which came up while the ocean was being churned for nectar all of these by the way they have um, deep psychological meaning churning an ocean for nectar is basically plumbing the depths of our unconscious and great treasures come up and awful things come up so this churning i don't know where they did it but this was the place manhattan in the 1950s and 60s everybody was churning the ocean for nectar everybody had a psychoanalyst and um some of the greatest psychoanalysts they migrated from europe to uh, america and they were here um yes then airavatam gajendranam the king of elephants was also recovered from the churning of the ocean think of me when you think of that naranam chanaradhipam the king among all human beings this is interesting because as long as we have had kings and queens they always were associated with divine right so the god rules as the king so uh, the king was sort of divinity among among human beings and here he says when you look at the king think of god 28 ayudhanam aham vajram ayudhanam aham vajram dhenu namasmi kamadhuk dhenu namasmi kamadhuk prajanaschasmi kandarpa prajanaschasmi kandarpa sarpanamasmi vasuki sarpanamasmi vasuki of weapons i am the thunderbolt of cows i am the kamadhenu i am the productive passion and uh, of poisonous serpents i am vasuki so ayudhanam aham vajram i think i mentioned it where in the mundakopanishad class the thunderbolt the weapon of the gods weapon of indra so that weapon was made by the bones of the righteous saint dadiji you know the great vritrasura uh, the great demon was defeating the gods and so only the Uh, a special weapon could kill this demon and the weapon was to be made of the bones of the sage dadichi and uh, uh, so the gods went to the sage who was meditating and asked him for a boon and he says anything so they asked him but basically asking him to die you know like so that they can have their bones so we want your bones and he gladly gave up his body in meditation and they 
made the thunderbolt out of the bones of the sage. That, that's the weapon of Indra, the king of the gods, and with which he defeated the great demon, Vritrasura. So I am Vajra, I am the thunderbolt. Um, among cows, I am Kamadhenu, who is supposed to give whatever you wish. Kamadhenu literally means milked for desires. Whatever you desire, that, that the, the cow gives. Again, one of the treasures which came up in the churning of the ocean. Uh, an interesting, Kandarpa, the god of love, Prajanas Chasmi, and he says, I am the god of love. Among all things that are productive, reproductive, I am the god of love. And there, the commentator immediately flags this. He says, Prajana, Prajautpatti Hetu, that which leads to reproduction. I am the sexual urge, Kamosmi, I am lust, I am passion. But then the commentator says, Na kevalam sambhoga pradhana, kamo madvibhuti, ashastriyatvat. This is um, the sexual urge, lust, for the purpose which nature intended it to be, for reproduction and the propagation of the species and continuation of, of nature, of samsara, but not for um, sensual enjoyment. Why? So Krishna says that. Um, lust which is used for sensual enjoyment is not my glory. Ashastriyatvat, because this is not um, not approved by the scriptures. So people can immediately misunderstand, you know. Look, here Krishna says, my glory is lust. <laughs> no, that power which leads to the continuation of life, which you see all around, in nature, everywhere. And that is the glory of God, but uh, not uh, for sensual enjoyment. Then the next one. Anantaschas minaganam, Anantaschas minaganam, Varuno yadasamaham, Varuno yadasamaham, Pitrinam aryama chasmi, Pitrinam aryama chasmi, Yama sangyamatamaham, Yama sangyamatamaham. Among non-poisonous non snakes, so he's making a distinction between poisonous snakes and non-poisonous snakes. I am Ananta, of aquatic beings, beings which dwell in water. I am Varuna, the king of the uh, oceans. Of the um, forefathers, I am Aryaman. Aryaman is the king of the forefathers, of, of, a, of a plane where our forefathers dwell temporarily. So the king is Aryaman. Of the regulators, I am Yama, the god of death. Then number thirty. Praladaschas midaityanam, Praladaschas midaityanam, Kala kalayatamaham, Kala kalayatamaham, Mrigarnamcha mrigendroham, Mrigarnamcha mrigendroham, Vainateyascha pakshinam. Of demons I am Prahlada, of reckoners I am time, among beasts I am the lion, and among birds I am Garuda. So among demons I am Prahlada. Again a well-known story, uh, Prahlada the devotee of God, of, of, uh, of Vishnu. So he, he was actually the son, he was a demon, he was the son of the, the powerful and evil demon king Hiranyakashipu. So well-known and beloved story, which not from Sanskrit studies, but I got it from Amar Chitra Katha when I was a little kid. The story is well-known, that Prahlada loved God and his father, the mighty demon king Hiranyakashipu, hated God. 
so he couldn't bear it that his son loved God and he tried every possible way to dissuade him from loving God including telling his tutors don't teach him about God let him not hear the word name of, of Narayan or Vishnu and so on finally his uh, atrocities went to such an extent that uh, Vishnu came to the rescue of his child devotee Prahlada in fact in iconography whenever Prahlada is shown although he became the king of the demons later on but he is always so shown as a child so Vishnu comes to the rescue of his child as an avatar and this is the famous uh, Nrsingha avatar, the man-lion avatar. So the story is Hiranyakashipu was so powerful, he was arrogant because nobody could kill him. He had got, uh, you know, he asked for a boon from I think Brahma and uh, he said, Let, make me immortal like the gods. Brahma said, no, that I can't give. Then Hiranyakashipu said, alright, just make it that I cannot be killed with any weapons and I cannot be killed in a day or in the night and I cannot be killed uh, on the in the heavens or on the earth or in the netherworld and I can't be killed inside the house or outside the house so like this he sort of set all conditions and Brahma said alright uh, and I cannot be killed by animals human beings demons gods yeah. and weapons also not by weapons so he thought he was pretty safe. Who's going to kill him? <laughs> and so then what happened was uh, finally God could not be bear the tortures on his uh, child devotee. So he decided to wipe out this demon king. And one day he, they were having the father-son argument, the same old argument. There's no such thing as God. God is useless and whatnot. Uh, and the father was saying, where's this God of yours? And the little boy said, he's everywhere. And the father said, where? It's nonsense. Where, where is God? Is he in this pillar? Like this, a big stone pillar. And Prahlad said, yes, he's in that pillar. And his father wanted to show him once for all. That's all nonsense. And with a mighty kick, he kicked down the pillar. You imagine he's a demon king, right? So he kicked down the stone pillar. And to his horror and amazement, from the pillar burst out this terrible form of a giant man-lion. It's described, you know, shining with the light of a thousand suns and um, towering over uh, everything and turned and looked at him. <laughs> so he ran for his life but this man-lion caught him and took him to the threshold of his house. Not inside, not outside, on the threshold. <laughs> and to, um, he started trembling when the man-lion lifted him to his lap. Not in the sky, not on the earth, not underneath, <laughs> but on his lap. And then to his horror he saw it was twilight, not morning, not uh, even, uh, evening. <laughs> and then the uh, man lion, you know, his terrible nails and fangs and he tore him apart. So that was the end of the demon king and all the worlds were terrified and they prayed um, for succor and so what happened was the little boy Prahlada went up to him and so this terrible form became soft and uh, affectionate and took the boy Prahlada on his lap and looked at him with love and so that was the end of the story. Uh, so that is the demon king Prahlada. I have to tell this story though. I've told this many times but it's really funny. So the, this is a, a fa famous theme for uh, theatrical performances, you know, the, the Indian equivalent of Broadway shows. So 
Uh, once it happened, and I am told on good sources that this really happened. So children in one of our ashrams were performing this uh, play of Prahlada and Hiranyakashipu uh, and the uh, incarnation of the man-lion. So the climax came, and all of these um, actors were little kids. The climax came when the demon king, one little kid, shouted, where is your god? And the, the idea was that the kid dressed as the man-lion, you know, he had a big headgear and everything, he would hide behind one of the pillars. The pillars were made of cardboard. And um, then the demon king would kick down the pillar and the man-lion would jump out with almighty growl and catch hold of the demon king and kill him. So, unfortunately, there were two pillars. <laughs> and the man-lion was, uh, the incarnation was hiding behind one. Everybody could see him. I mean, even the audience could see him. <laughs> he was pretending to hide. And... Unfortunately, the lion, the demon king couldn't see him from his vantage point. With, so he said, where is your God? And he says, everywhere, in this pillar. Um, uh, uh, and uh, he, uh, the little boy said, uh, he's everywhere, but especially behind that pillar. <laughs> he was a smart little kid. He knew they were heading for disaster. <laughs> Because if he kicked down the pillar and God was not there, th that would ruin the whole point of the play. Um, among the birds, I am Garuda. Do you have time for one more story? What do you say? Yeah. One more story? Okay, <laughs> one more story. Yeah, I, uh, this is another famous story from the Puranas. So Garuda, um, you will see the iconography of the great bird Garuda who is the you know, the gods have their rights, the Vahana, those who bear the gods. So Divine Mother Durga has the lion and Vishnu or Narayana has the, the, the great bird Garuda. So this, uh, that's why Krishna says, among all birds, I am the great bird Garuda. So the story goes like this. The, great, the sage, great sage Kashyapa uh, had two wives, Kadru and Vinita. So you can all see the connection here. Vainateya. Literally it means the son of Vinita. Now they were sisters. And, uh, but they were very jealous of each other. Now at one point they prayed to the sage to bless them with children. And Kadru went first and said, I want a thousand children. All valorous and brave and mighty and magnificent. So the sage said, let that be so. And then Vinita went and said, uh, I want only two, but each should be greater than the thousand kids of, uh, of Kadru. <laughs> and the sage said, let that be so. And then um, from Kadru came a thousand eggs and from Vinita came two. Which, which shows you that they are not exactly stories of human beings, you know. So a thousand eggs of... Um, Kadru had to be incubated for a thousand years. And there are details of how they were kept in pots of warm water. And after a thousand years, the eggs burst forth and these mighty serpents came out. So she is the mother of all the serpents in the, in the world. So mighty snakes, the nagas and all, they, they came out. Now Vinita's eggs didn't hatch and she was jealous and she was impatient. So she broke open one of the eggs and a half-formed child came out. Um, and this child was supposed to be, have the brilliance of the sun, you know, the midday sun, the glory of the midday sun. But it was not formed. It was half formed. 
and the child was furious with his mother and um, uh, cursed his mother that you're going to be a slave for 500 years until your my brother the uh, one in the other egg hatches and then he rose up in the sky so instead of being the bright golden uh, hue of the midday sun he was a bright ruddy uh, red red orange and his name was aruna so yeah so you know there was the sunrise you have the the color which comes just before the sun rises it's called arunodaya so that is aruna he he got a job as uh, the driver for the sun god's chariot so that that's his what in manhattan you'd call his gig <laughs> <laughs> so he big so you know they are they all it uh, so every time the sun rises in the east and goes and sinks in the west it's basically visualized as the the chariot of the sun god racing across the sky and aruna the son of vinita is driving the sun god and so at sunrise and maybe even at sunset the ruddy glow you see that's aruna then what happened 500 years and there was a little got long story short or a little bit i have to explain how did vinita become the slave so kadru um uh, engage vinita in a in a challenge bet you know the divine horse same uchchayshravas which we just read about uh, it's um what's the color of its tail it's glowing white so what's the color of the tail and poor vinita thought the horse is white so tail must be white and she said it's white uh, but what she did kadru did was she told her sons the serpents to cover the tail of the the uh, horse so it looked black from a distance and so she told vinita you have lost the lost the challenge now you're going to be my slave and so she became the slave of uh, of kadru for 500 years until her uh, the other egg hatched and this mighty bird uh, emerged garuda it was the great uh, bird garuda again a motif in many indian temples everywhere you have a vaishnava temple with vishnu you will see garuda standing with hands uh, folded to the side not only in uh, india across southeast asia i was doing some research on this in indonesia and uh, i think in uh, malaysia uh, in their coat of arms the military they have the motif of garuda um uh, and in many parts they have the the in in buddhism for example um, there are birds called garula who are golden huge golden birds and they are often depicted in motifs where buddha is teaching they are standing with their hands folded and listening to the um, so they are descendants of the mighty bird garuda and so on and so this garuda he rescued his mother long story short uh, he became a sworn enemy of serpents so he's always often depicted as holding a serpent in one of his claws or eating a serpent and that's the enmity between uh, hawks and eagles and snakes and many stories of their rivalry and how he rescues his mother from slavery and then he got a job too as the ride of vishnu so it runs in the family uh, aruna drives uh, the sun god and uh, uh, garuda is the vahana or the ride for for uh, vishnu So that's the story. I'm um, basically Krishna is saying when you think of Garuda, the mighty Garuda, think of me. All right, we'll stop here. But good progress. I think we did eight or nine verses. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat.
ಶ್ರೀರಾಮಕೃಷ್ಣಾರ್ಪಣಮಸ್ 